Father, we pray that there be nothing just just merely human that goes on in this room today. We pray for supernatural activity of your spirit to really illuminate the word of God and to so work in us that you make us more like Jesus. We pray for revelation and greater understanding of you, your holiness, that would impact us and change us. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this guy, and he was married... And his wife had twins. They thought that they really were unable to, you know, properly provide for these twins, so they gave them up for adoption. One of them went to a family in Egypt, and they named him Amal. The other one goes to a family in Spain, and they named him Juan. Well, after a while, you know, they, the couple deeply regretted that they gave their children up for adoption, and they really wanted to reconnect with them, and they wanted to see how they were doing. So after many years, they were actually able to connect with Juan in Spain. So Juan decided to send a picture of himself because the mother desperately wanted to see uh, what he looked like, so he sent a picture. She got the picture, and she was just really rejoiced that she had this picture of Juan. Then she said to her husband that, she also really wished she had a picture of Amal. And her husband responded and said, but they're twins. If you've seen one, That's closing prayer. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. Well, unfortunately, that's how a lot of non-believers really in our country view religion. To them, religions are all basically the same. In their mindset, you've seen one, you've seen them all. But the truth is, Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. It's all about having a personal relationship with God, which is only possible through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. See, God the Father sent his one and only son to the earth to be born a human, a man, to live a sinless life, to show us what the Father's like, but then to go to the cross and die the death we deserved. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. When Jesus comes and pays our wages for us by going to the cross and dying in our place. But why did he do it? Did he do it just so we could have sins forgiven, so we go to heaven? Now, what he did was far beyond that. His goal in coming was to bring about reconciliation with us and God, to bring us into relationship now and forever. See, the Bible is very clear that we were God's enemies. We shook our fists in the face of God and went our own way, turned our back on God. That's called sin. But God wanted that relationship restored. So he devised a way in which enemies of his could become his friends. God the Father signed a peace treaty with rebels on the earth, and he did it with the blood of his son. So Jesus did what he did to do what? To bring us back to God. It's all about relationship. That's what Christianity is all about. 
What's blocking our relationship was our sins had to be forgiven. So Jesus dies for our sins so we can have forgiveness of sins. He pays our penalty, takes our place. So now we can have access to God. Another thing that kept us from God is we were under the bondage of the devil. While on the cross, Jesus also defeats the devil, breaking his power over us so we could actually do what? Have relationship with God. So when we repent and turn to Christ as our Savior and Lord, then our sins are forgiven. The devil's power is broken over us. For what? So we could have a relationship with God. Well, that's what this Knowing God series is all about. It's all about us now growing in that relationship that we have with God, growing closer and closer to him. How? By coming to know him better and better. Not just know about him, but know him better and better. So access to God is granted to us through what Jesus did for us on the cross. So now we have a relationship with God. But now we need to grow in that relationship, and that is going to depend upon the choices that we make. What kind of choices will we make? Will we make choices on a daily basis that really cause us to grow in our love for him, grow in our trust of him, and grow in our obedience to him? So each week what we're doing in this series is we're taking one of the attributes of God, like his goodness and his sovereignty, which we did the, last, the first two weeks. We're taking different attributes and then seeing how knowing that's truth about him helps us grow closer to him. See, we tend to move toward our mental image of God. So it's crucial that we have an accurate and true view of God. It will dramatically affect everything in our lives. Now, the truth is, most, for most Christians, professing Christians, their God is way too small. Most professing Christians... What they think about God, a low-ranking angel could fulfill most of that. God is far more majestic and powerful and glorious and splendorous. Uh, the truth is, he's much more than any of us can imagine. I mean, the, our, our God, he defies all cozy, you know, cozy descriptions. He's not anyone's co-piler, anyone's chum. He's not anyone's circus dog. He is holy, holy, holy. And we've been singing about this all morning long. But this is what the prophet Isaiah discovered, that our God is a holy, holy, holy God. So we're going to look in Isaiah chapter 6 to see exactly what Isaiah learned and what we can learn about the holiness of God. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is granted access into the curtains are pulled back and he gets to view into the heavenly throne room and see God on his throne. And we're going to see what he saw. Isaiah chapter 6, in verse 1, we'll put these verses on the screen as well. You can look them up in your Bible. There's also Bibles in the seat back in front of you. You can look it up there as well. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you can take that Bible home with you. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I, this is the prophet Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Where is there a temple where the Lord himself sits on a throne? There's only one place, and that's heaven. Here's what it says in Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple... 
The Lord's throne is in heaven. So again, Isaiah has the curtain pulled back and he gets this vision from God where he's allowed to see into the heavenly throne room. And what does he see? Well, he sees the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. And then it says, and the, just the robe, has, he has a robe on, the Lord does, with a train. And the train fills the entire temple. Just kind of picture that. But also he sees all these angels around the one who's sitting on the throne. The angels that he sees are the seraphim. The seraphim are the six-winged six angels. And he sees what's going on there. Let's just see. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. Verse two. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. So these six-winged angels are hovering. It says they stand above, but then they're flying. They're hovering above this indescribable one. And really, they are on both sides. They're above and on both sides of the throne. Actually, there's like two opposite choirs. And they are about to sing a, some worship that is, really is antiphonal in worship. It means that... One side is going to say, sing one thing, and the other, the other side of the angels are going to sing another thing. It's antiphonal. Verse 3, let's see what they're singing. One cried out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the meaning is not that they're lifting up their voices in concert saying that line, but really that they're saying it to each other. So it's antiphonal. you got one side saying, Holy, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the other side, the seraphim is saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. Then they go back again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they respond, the whole earth is full of his glory. You get that picture? Okay, let's act it out here because I don't think you're getting it. Okay, since you guys are in the middle, you will be like on the throne and you guys are going to be one side. So everyone stand up in these, these, two, these two rows. Stand up. Come on, come on. i got to do something in church today. I gotta, all right, over here. Y'all stand up in these two columns. All right? Now, you got to participate. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, the, the first service flunked this. Okay? It was so lame. I didn't tell them that, but don't you tell them either. Okay? But I know you guys can outdo them. So here's what we're going to do. You guys, in just a moment, are going to go, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and you guys are going to respond loudly. The whole earth is full of his glory. And say it like you mean it, because angels right now are watching to see how we pull this off, okay? All right, so ready? This side over here, here we go. Ready? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Here we go. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here we go again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Ready? The whole earth is full of his glory. All right, amen. Y'all pass. Y'all can sit down. God himself is the holy one. He is the separate one. He is beyond and above everything in this world, in this universe. He is true light. He is spotless purity. He's the perfect one. His glory is his manifested holiness. In fact, Isaiah's favorite name 
throughout the book of Isaiah, and you can figure out why it became his favorite name. His favorite name for God is the Holy One of Israel. All the prophecies of Isaiah carry this name of God as their stamp. Isaiah never forgot what he saw when he first saw God on that throne. Now, here you have these amazing angelic creatures. They are full of glory themselves. They are holy also themselves. Yet, even in their holy, lofty status that they have, think about this. I mean, if one seraph shows up in this room, in their holiness, in their glory, in their majesty, one seraph, and we are all on our faces. Those same seraphim, in the presence of God, have to cover their eyes with two of their wings. Because they just to shield them from a direct gaze into the face of God. The second pair of wings, they have to cover their feet. Now, why are they covering their feet? That's for a different reason. And many, it's not hard for us to figure that out. We remember the story of Moses when he comes on the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. God speaks to Moses through a burning bush that's not being consumed. Remember in the wilderness? And what does God say to Moses when he comes upon his presence? What does he say? Take off your shoes. For the place that you stand is holy ground. What makes it holy? Well, the presence of God makes it holy. And taking off the shoes was, was an act of reverence to God. So the seraph, seraphim were covering their feet in his presence because of his holiness. So verse 3 again, And one called out to another, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This song is a repetition of a single word, holy. Three times the word is sung in succession. Now, the significance of the repetition of the word holy represents really a literary device that's found in Hebrew forms of literature. That is the way they brought about emphasis. For example, in our language, when we want to emphasize something, we write, what do we do? We underline it. We put it in italics, we embolden it, we put it all in caps, or we put quotation marks around it. We got all these different ways that we're trying to say, this is really important here. But in the Hebrew language, what they used was repetition to indicate emphasis. For example, when Jesus was about to say something that he really wanted them to understand was really important, what would he say? Truly, truly. I say to you. In other words, this is really important. So he repeats the word truly twice. On only a handful of occasions in the Bible is something repeated to a third degree. To mention something three times in succession is to elevate it to the superlative degree. It's to attach to it an emphasis of this. This is really super important. For example... In the book of Revelation, right before the judgment of God in full force comes upon the earth in the last days, there's an eagle that flies in midair in the book of Revelation, and it says with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. In other words, whoa, 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 what's about to happen? And so it's going to be, it's really trying to give an emphasis and attention to it. Well, the Bible says that God is holy, holy, 
holy. He's not merely holy. He's not merely holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, love, love. It never says, the Bible never says God is mercy, 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 or God is justice, justice, justice. But it does say that he is holy, holy, holy. Now, what does it mean to be holy? Well, of course, it means that he has no sin. He's completely separate from all evil, but it means a lot more than that. It means that he is perfection, but even our, our idea of perfection falls so short of what he is. I mean, we use the word perfect way too lightly. He's flawless, but that too doesn't do justice to his holiness. You know, I was watching a basketball playoff game one time, and the TV commentators kept talking about two of the players on the court, and they kept saying that these two players are a cut above the other players. Or they'd say, these two guys are in a league of their own, a class of their own. Well, think about this. God is surrounded by these amazing creatures, these holy angels, seraphim. Also, we sang about the four living creatures, the cherubim, these myriads of angels. But God is not just in a class of his own. He is not just a cut above. He's not, just, he's not even just 10,000 cuts above. He's a zillion, kazillion, trillion cuts above, these angels. When we say that God is holy, 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 we're saying that everything pure, everything perfect, everything wonderful and glorious is found in him. He is perfect in his perfection. He is flawless in the sense that everything noble, everything perfect comes from him and is found in him. You know, these angels themselves are beyond our imagination in their glory and splendor and their majesty, and their wonder. And I think if one of them appeared right here, talking to us about God, I think they'd say after we're on our faces, they'd say, you think I'm something? You haven't seen anything yet. There is one who's not just a cut above, not a couple cuts above, not even a million cuts above. There is one that is a trillion, zillion, gazillion cuts above. He is holy, holy, holy. Now, how important is it that we see him that way and we treat him as holy? Now, if I was to ask, ask you to think of some of the great men and women of the Bible and make a list of them, I bet on everybody's list would be the name Moses. Moses would be one of the greats of the Bible. He lived a great life, had a great ministry, <clears throat> but do you know that Moses did not fulfill his spiritual potential. Do you know that Moses did not go where he could have gone and did not do what he could have done? Do you all know the story? Let's look at it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 48. Let's just read verse 48 through 52. The Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up to this mountain, mountain of Ebe." Abiram, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend. And be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Or and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me 
in the midst of the sons of Israel in the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I'm giving to the sons of Israel. So because Moses did not treat God as holy, in this instance, at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. He has to settle for seeing it from a distance. Because Moses doesn't treat God as holy, he doesn't get to go where he could have gone. Right? He doesn't get to do what he could have done. It's like Moses is in the game for three quarters and he gets benched in the fourth quarter. Moses doesn't fulfill his spiritual potential. There's more he could have done. There's more he could have, more places he could have gotten to go. Now, what did he do exactly? Well, let me summarize the story for you. You can read about it in the book of Numbers chapter 20. Remember, Moses is leading the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. The reason they're, lead, they're wandering the wilderness for 40 years is because of their unbelief. And while he's doing that, there was a time that they ran out of water. And so Moses is told to go up to a rock and take the staff of God, the rod of God, and strike the rock, and water came out for the people to drink. Well, later on, they had the same problem. Many years later, they also don't have water. But this time, God tells Moses to do something different. He didn't say go up and strike the rock with the rod, not this time. He tells Moses to go up to the rock and just speak to it. Now, if you've got two million people down in the wilderness and Moses is just going up to speak to the rock, is anybody going to hear him? Probably not. But they're going to see the water come out of the rock and they're going to know that Moses didn't do it, God did it. But Moses is frustrated. He's frustrated with the people. He's angry. But also, I believe there's a little bit of, he slipped into a little bit of, I think, self-glory. Because here's what he does in Numbers 20.10. He goes up to that rock with his rod, and he says to the people, Shall we, he and Aaron, shall we bring forth water for you out of this rock? And then he takes the rod, and he strikes the rock. Now, water still came out. But only God can bring forth water from the rock. Moses is only the instrument of God. See, God must always get the glory, not man. So Moses didn't speak to, to the rock like God commanded. He hit the rock with his rod in anger. Now, here's the point. The point is this. I want you to understand what, the, what it says earlier, what we read earlier, that Moses did not treat God as holy in front of the people. So he doesn't get to go where he could have gone, doesn't get to do what he could have done. He has to settle for seeing the fulfillment of the promises or the fulfillment of his potential even. From a distance. Moses found out that it matters to God how we treat him. It's costly not to treat God as holy. And Moses also found out there's no exception to the rule, not even him. Leviticus 10.3 says this, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. That's what God says. No exception to the rule. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. No exception to the rule. 
doesn't matter if you led the people of God for 40 years. It doesn't matter if you're the humblest man on the face of the earth. It doesn't matter if you've had meetings with God face to face like no man before. No exception to the rule. By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. No exception to the rule. And that's what happens, I think, a lot of times in leadership. You start to think in spiritual leadership that there's exceptions for you. There's no exception to this rule. God must be treated as holy. If we want, if you don't want to get benched in the fourth quarter, then treat God as holy. You have to treat God as holy. I sometimes wonder, you know, about a lot of the church in the West who they read about the great things God is doing in other parts of the world and they wonder why it's not happening where they're at, why they feel like they're watching it from a distance. Could it be because much of the church in the West does not treat God as holy? Holy, holy. And could it be that a lot of the church doesn't get to go where they could go and doesn't get to do what they could do because they don't treat God as holy? So, okay, I want to treat God as holy. What does that look like? Let's see. One way it looks is it looks like worship. Look at Psalm 99, verse 5. It says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. God is holy. He's like no other. He's awesome, glorious, exalted. And the right response to his holiness is worship. Worship with all our heart, all our strength, all our mind. Worship with all our affection, all our adoration, all our devotion, all our allegiance. And so let me just ask you, so you've been in worship this morning already. Would you, would you say that your worship this morning was a way that you, were you treating God as holy in your worship? I mean, did you really treat him as holy in your worship? Do you give him all you got? But treating God holy involves more than just properly worshiping him. There's something else I want us to notice. There's another appropriate response if we're going to treat God as holy. And we see that response in Isaiah in this passage. But first, before we get to that, let's go back into that passage and build up to it. Verse 4. And the foundations, this is after the seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy. Verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled. At the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. So just the voice of the seraph, the seraphim, is causing there to be a trembling of the foundations of this temple in heaven. I mean, when they're saying, they're saying holy and the whole place is shaken. And as they sing, holy, 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 it says smoke fills the temple. Now, where does that smoke come from? Well, we don't have to guess. Verse 6 tells us there's an altar burning. Those sacrifices which are to satisfy the holiness of God have to burn, even in heaven, as the holiness of God is declared. That holiness which requires sacrifice, think about this, that holiness of God is just so great. That which, which requires sacrifice, simply requires so much that the smoke fills even the temple of heaven. 
So when they sing holy, 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 verse 4, the doorposts and thresholds of the temple are shaking like thunder. The thresholds are shaking. In fact, the ground where, where, they, where the pillars are, are, are there are shaking. The whole ground is shaking. Think about this. I mean, even heaven itself cannot hold the magnitude of the holiness of God. The whole place is shaking. I mean, this is overwhelming holiness. Heaven cannot contain it. Now notice Isaiah's response, verse 5. Then I said, this is Isaiah talking, then I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, Woe to me, I am ruined. In other words, I can't look upon this. I mean, it's more than just the fact that he realizes a man can't see, see the face of God and live. It's even, I think, more than this idea of, you know, that God is, is just so amazing that, you know, he's, he's shaken up by it. I think, I think in the midst of seeing God as he's seeing him, I'm thinking he's saying, I can't, haven't seen that, I can't see me and live. In other words, I can't stand this. When I look at, when I look at me in the light of him, so great is his holiness. I mean, I can't sing with the angels. I can't sing. My lips are unclean. My being is stained. What would I say? This is where it starts. We see something happen with Isaiah. And I think this is what happens when you really get a glimpse of the holiness of God. Is there is a repentance and a humility you're overcome by. I mean, the doors of the temple are shaking, the whole temple is shaking, but I think the thing that might be shaking the most in this whole scene is Isaiah himself. Isaiah's shaking. When he saw the living God, the reigning monarch of the universe, displayed before his eyes in holiness, he cries out, Woe is me. I mean, on the lips of the, if you read the book of Isaiah, he, he declared woe over cities. By the Spirit of God, woe over nations, woe over individuals. What was he saying? Is the judgment of God is coming. Woe to this city and woe to this nation. What? You're doomed. Judgment's coming. And then he sees God and he pronounces, woe is me. Woe to me, he cried. I think at that very moment, I think Isaiah at that moment thought he was doomed. He said, he cried, I am undone. To be undone means to come apart at the seams, to come unraveled. What Isaiah was experiencing here really was like personal disintegration. He was feeling himself come apart in the presence of the holiness of God. Now, by the way, if there was ever a man in that time period that everyone thought had it all together, it was Isaiah. I mean... He was considered by his contemporaries as the most righteous man in the nation. He was respected for his virtue. But when he got a glimpse of God, I mean, in that single moment, he is just shattered. In a brief, just this brief second, he's exposed, made naked beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness himself. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to others, I mean, he probably came out pretty good. But now, he is seeing himself in light of absolute holiness. And he is just 
undone, morally, spiritually annihilated. He's coming apart at the seams. At that moment, I think he has a new radical view of sin. You know, God normally reveals our sinfulness a bit at a time, right? But I think Isaiah saw his sinfulness all at once in the presence of God, and he was ruined. But at that very same instant, something else happened. Notice this, verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. Remember, this is the altar of sacrifice. He's about to cause this sacrifice to impact the life of Isaiah. So one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, with which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, So now the sacrifice, the altar sacrifice is being applied to Isaiah. And he said to me, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And so the sacrifice, the altar sacrifice being applied to Isaiah touches his lips, and now he's being purified, he's being cleansed, he's being healed. Now he can sing with the angels. By the way, aren't you glad that God is like it? The same God who's holy, holy, holy is a God of grace. He doesn't leave him undone. He doesn't leave him annihilated, disintegrated. He doesn't leave him on his belly, you know, mourning over his sin. He quickly comes with forgiveness that's available because of sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, of course, being Christ on the cross who fills all, fulfills all sacrificial system. And so this divine act of cleansing cleanses Isaiah to the core. He's forgiven of all his sins, the sin he's mourning over and he's groveling about. He's overcome by, he's healed from it all. all, His sin is taken away. In a moment, the disintegrated prophet is made whole again. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, by the way, now God is, for the first time, is going to speak in this scene. Up to this point, we hadn't heard what God has to say. Now God's going to speak. And what he speaks, take notice, because we really see his heart in this. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I, Isaiah, said, Here am I. Send me. So now we hear the voice of God. I want you to think about the angels who've been saying, Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. They all go silent. And then comes the booming voice of God. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, we see this pattern repeated over and over in history. God appears. Man quakes in terror. God forgives and heals. Then God sends. Sends into ministry. So from brokenness to mission. Never forget that. From brokenness to mission is the pattern of God for man. So God asks the question, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? By the way, he's still asking that question. I think he's asking that question right now in this room. I think he's asking that question to all those that are online. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Don't look any further, God. Here I am. I'm ready. 
send me. So God's able to take a shattered man and send him into the ministry. He took a sinful man and made him a prophet. He took a man with a dirty mouth and made him God's spokesman. By the way, don't ever think that God can't put you back together again when you've come all apart. He does it again and again for his purposes on the earth. Some of you learned the same rhyme I learned when I was a kid, Humpty Dumpty. Remember how it goes? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. But all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. But the king could. In a real life, the king does. So where are you guys in this, just, you know, between you and God? Are you, do you really see him as holy, holy, holy? Do you treat him as holy, holy, holy? Are you in need of cleansing and purifying today? Maybe today you're, you're, you're thinking, you're feeling the conviction of the Spirit of God in your own life. Realize you need cleansing, you need forgiveness today. I, tell you, I just want to invite everyone to stand. Let's all stand together. We're going to close with just a ministry time and take our time with this. Before we get into it, I just want to pray. Father, we're asking you to cause this to be a time where you change reality. We just invite you, the ministry of your spirit, Lord, to do a work in each of us. Lord, we pray that this revelation of your holiness would really grab a hold of our hearts, would grip us in the very depths of our soul and spirit. I pray we could never recover from it. You are holy, holy, holy. But Lord, we're also so grateful that you're forgiving God. You're full of grace and mercy. We pray, Lord, that you would just work now in our lives in Jesus' name. Just stay, stay in the spirit of prayer. Would you keep your head bowed, your eyes closed? Some of you right now are just thinking, I just, Lord, I need you to take my iniquity away and cleanse me of my sin. If that's you, I just want you just to not, not leave your area where you're standing, but just go ahead and slip to your knees or down to your chair and bow your head, but some, some posture of humility. Kneel or bow. Say, Lord, I just I need your cleansing. I need your forgiveness. Father, we thank you that that's available in Jesus. Confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah 6, 7, is, the seraph actually is the one who says this. One of the seraphim says, your iniquity is taken away, Isaiah. Your sin is forgiven. But only God has the power to do that. The seraphim just announced it. So over all those who are repentant right now and are humbling yourself before God, I am going to, in Jesus' name, announce it. Only God can do it, but I can announce it. And I announce it in the name of Jesus right now over everyone who's repentant. I announce over you, your, your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven. Say it again. Receive this. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is forgiven.
I say this in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Now receive that. Receive that. The devil's a liar. Don't tell him, don't let him put a guilt trip on you when you leave here. You're forgiven. You're cleansed. Hold your head up now. Thank you, Lord. Now let's all, all to your feet, if you would. Because I also want to close with this. I think he's asking that question, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he's waiting for an answer. And some of you in this room, you say, well, you know what? I've never really seen myself as being on mission. I go to work, but I never really see myself on mission at work. I go to school, I never really see myself on a mission on the campus. I'm in my neighborhood, but I never really see my neighborhood as a mission field. But the Lord is asking you today, can I send you there now? Can I send you? Who shall I send? Who will go? And some of you today are saying, I'm ready to say it now, Lord. I'm ready to say, here am I, send me. And some of you have had a call in your life to do something beyond even this area. You know it's on your life. And the Lord's still asking, will you go for me? And so Kathy's going to lead us in this song. And as she leads us in this song, those of you that feel like the Lord is speaking to you about this, and you're just saying, yes, send me, whether it's in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your school, or across the ocean. But there's a sense of calling that you're saying yes to, or a sense of a recalling you're saying yes to. And during the song, come up to the front, and we're going to pray for you. These times are important. I believe God is calling and recalling right now in a powerful way. So respond to it. By the way, if you, if you don't say I don't need to come up here. If you, if you can't, you know, can't come up here for prayer, you're probably not going to go do the other stuff anyway. So have the faith to say, Lord, I'm coming up for prayer. I'm saying yes to the call. I think sometimes it helps just to get out of our seat and move our bodies and say, yes, here I am I. Send me. So, Father, as we sing this, I just pray for the ministry of your spirit to call and to recall and to really cause, Lord, there to be people on point in their roles that you're calling them to. Pray for the ministry of your spirit to empower everyone who says yes to you today, Lord. So as Kathy sings this song, just feel free to come on up. We're going to pray for you in a minute before we close.
So everyone that's come up for prayer, just put your hands out with your palms up and just receiving from God. Postures can help us engage our faith. Father, would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us fresh today? Upon all those that are saying, here am I, send me. Would you pour out your anointing now? Let it come, Lord. Fill them with your Spirit. For all of us in this room and all online, would you pour out your Spirit upon us? Lord, send us fresh into all these places that you're calling us. And we can speak the truth about our holy God and our loving, forgiving God. Lord, I pray that you would break off every, every demonic scheme that's holding anybody back. In Jesus' name, just break it off. Let us with full liberty now serve you in all our places you're calling us. Lord, cause us to bear much fruit for your glory and honor, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray this week we'd find ourselves seeing you in your holiness and treating you as holy, honoring you for the people and never treating you in trite ways. But you are a holy God. We're so glad we belong to you. Lord, we pray you use us this week now to bring you honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Now, before we're dismissed, I want to say that we have Connection Coffee in this far corner. Staff will be back there to answer any questions. If this is your first Sunday, I'd love to meet you personally before you go up here in this corner, the welcome corner. But also, we have some leaders down front that would be glad to pray for you if you have other prayer needs. Father, now would you dismiss us with your blessing and cause us to be shattered the darkness people as we shine the light of Christ. We pray in his name. Everybody says, Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.